Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the shag carpeting, the wood-burning stove, and the ping-pong table. Your loft. That greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Well, hello to everyone catching The Conspiracy Show on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hi to those who take the show with you on your mobile device. Now, I just received a text message from the mighty Aphrodite back home. And uh, she says the Conspiracy Show app is no longer available on iTunes. I, I'm, I'm shocked. I wasn't aware of this. It comes as a complete surprise to me, and, um, well, I'll be looking into it, needless to say. So, howdy to all of you who watch the uh, the live stream on our YouTube channel. And once again, the YouTube channel is now called Strange Planet. The YouTube channel is now called Strange Planet, and we've passed 13,000 subs. So please, help us get to 15,000 and hit that red sub button. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here for the full hour to talk about angels and angelic communication. Before that, uh, just a reminder, The Conspiracy Show is now on Patreon. If you're a fan of the show or my podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited uh, or the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, and you'd like to become an official uh, patron of The Conspiracy Show, just go to patreon.com forward slash... The Conspiracy Show, patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show, and check out the three tiers or levels of support. The Star Chamber, Whistleblower, Truth Seeker. And uh, incidentally, I want to thank, I want to mention and thank our uh, our Star Chamber members. And it's uh, Denny, Denny Blaisdell, I believe. Let me see. I want to make sure I get this name right. Denny Blaisdell. And Brad Richardson, two of our Star Chamber patrons. Thank you so much, Denny and Brad, for your support. Also, every month, uh, the names of Patreon donors in the Star Chamber, Whistleblower, and Truth Seeker tiers are entered into a draw for Conspiracy Show merch. And this month's winner is Robert Carrasco of Oakland. Uh, Robert, you'll be receiving a copy of my Strange Planet Volume 2 CD, and that's a collection of my weekly radio features called Strange Planet. Uh, Also, the exclusive monthly hangouts on air and monthly chats for Patreon members, those begin in January. The monthly hangout on air with me or the exclusive monthly chat with me. So if you're a, a Patreon sponsor, you'll be receiving more details on how to get in on the Hangout on Air and chat with me. Those start in January. Patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show. All right. As we head into the Christmas season, I always enjoy talking about angels. Angels, of course, central to the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. I'm fascinated by them, as is Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And Rosemary joins us once a month to discuss all things supernatural, otherworldly, paranormal. She's here for the hour to talk about angels and her book, Calling Upon Angels, How Angels Can Help Us in Daily Life. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas to you too, Richard. I'm having a pleasant holiday month. Excellent. Well, angels, with you, that started real early. I mean, you felt since childhood, that you were surrounded by angels. Did you see them? I didn't see them. I sensed them, and I heard them. And I didn't start seeing things until I was a lot older, and I I worked at developing my psychic ability. 
but I felt angels around me at night before I would go to sleep, and they sang to me. And uh, if we were out in the car, if I was out in the car with my parents, I felt that they were with me, and they would sing to me uh, while I was in the back seat. And I thought everybody had angels around them. To me, it was perfectly natural. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized that people don't often experience angels. They they might not see them, hear them. Um, They might have maybe one or two experiences in their whole life, but not experience them on an ongoing basis. So throughout my life, I have cultivated this relationship with the angel kingdom, and I felt that it's been very important to me in my own spiritual path. They are, by their very definition and nature, messengers from the Godhead, and they are intercessors, and they connect us to the divine. In popular culture, they, they've been portrayed, I think, of um, you know, Touched by an Angel, which was a wonderful show, Our Highway to Heaven. So we think of angels as being you know, very approachable, uh, very uh, human-like. So we have that. We kind of contrast that with sort of biblical accounts. And I think of angels, and you refer to them in calling upon angels, as having this majesty, being full of majesty and power. If I were to encounter one of the archangels, like Michael or Gabriel, I think I would be terrified. I think I, they would be so, you know, the light would be blinding. It would be so awe-inspiring, almost to the point of being frightening. What do you think? Well, they are characterized by brilliant light. And in fact, when they do manifest in appearance to people, it's often as a pillar of light, not as a winged being. And I've had several of those experiences myself throughout life. The light is so intense that you can't even look at it directly. And uh, angels have communicated that they, they have to lower the intensity of their light just to even get to that threshold that the human organism just simply could not stand the intensity and the brilliance. There are, by the way, only a few angels, according to lore, who are capable of standing in the brilliance of God. They're called angels of the presence. And there are said to be seven of them. And uh, the archangels that we're most familiar with, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel, are among those seven who have the capability of withstanding the direct brilliance of God. You mentioned wings. Is that just, again, another sort of myth that's come down through popular culture because we refer to them as messengers? I mean, do angels, in fact, have wings? They can have wings and appearances. It seems that when angels manifest to people, they take on a form that's most appropriate for the encounter and the individual. But the addition of wings really came from the Greeks and the Romans. When angels were adopted into the official dogma of the emerging Christian church, there was a great debate among the theologians as to whether or not angels could even be portrayed in art, because there were no official images of God, so how could something that's even semi-divine be portrayed in art? But we did allow angels into religious art. And so the early artists looked first to the classical gods for models, and these were gods who had wings on their helmets, like Hermes Mercury of the Greeks and Romans, the messenger god, or they had wings on their feet, like Nike, And the wings symbolize the ability for rapid transport between worlds and the ability to reach heaven. 
people looked up into the sky, which they associated with heaven, the heavenly realms, and birds are in the sky, and so anything that could access heaven surely would have to have wings. Well, over the course of time, uh, the wing became more and more emphasized in art, so that by the time we reach the Renaissance and the Pre-Raphaelites, wings are absolutely enormous. Swans were used for models, and the wings are glorious-looking and sometimes multicolored as well. But in real life, angels may not have wings when they appear to people. I think I've shared this story with you years ago, but my one little fella, North, well, he's no, not so little now, he's 12, but I remember we were visiting his godparents, and uh, he might have been two. He could barely, just to the point of forming very simple sentences. And uh, either my wife and I were carrying him down the steps of the uh, godparents' house after the visit around Christmas, and he looked up into this pine tree or um, a cedar tree or whatever it was, and he pointed, and there was nothing there to the visible eye, and he pointed, and he said something to the effect of, look, an angel, and he talked about wings, we asked him to describe it, and he talked about the wings having eyes. And it seems to me that one of the nine orders of angels, one of those types of angels, they have wings with eyes. I'm not sure if it's the seraphim. Does that sound familiar? Uh, The seraphim are described as having wings with eyes, yes. Uh, The higher angels, uh, and we conceive of angels in a hierarchy of ascending order to the Godhead. And what the eyes symbolize are the eye, literally the eyes of God, the many seeing eyes of God, which see everything in creation in all directions. Now, he was two and a half. He had no, you know, there was no feeding his mind with talk of angels or anything like this. There's no way he would have known anything about that. In fact, I didn't know about angels with eyes until we looked it up. Would a seraphim make itself visible to someone or i mean do we have any dealings with seraphim well the seraphim are said to be the closest order to god the highest Uh and their energy is the most intense and most refined and according to official lore they don't often uh, mingle with humans because of that rather they sort of make their energy available to the lower orders of angels who have more congress with human beings and some of the archangels are described as having uh, eyes as well on their wings. So it's certainly plausible that your son could have had that sort of experience. And I find experiences like that as wonderful evidence and testimony to the existence of angels, that people without any direct knowledge of how angels should act or what they should look like have uh, experiences that, share common threads throughout history. Yes, as do I. And uh, I, I mean, I love that story and that it happened to my little guy, and I think about it often. We'll uh, take a time out, Rosemary. We'll come back and we'll dive into Calling Upon Angels, which has been out for, I think, three years now. We'll talk more about angels on the other side. Rosemary Ellen Guiley here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us for the full hour. We're talking angels. We talked about the seraphim. The other order of angels that I I find interesting are the principalities or rulers. So are they involved, say, in the geopolitical goings-on on Earth? Do they interact with world leaders in some manner? 
Well, that would be one of their functions. Now, uh, I should point out that the order of angels that we're familiar with was conceived by an individual known by the name of Pseudo Dionysius, whose writings are believed to date to the 5th or 6th century. And he's only one of many theologians who conceived of orders of angels and their duties. But one of the duties, whether they're principalities or some other kind of angel, would be to oversee the, you could call it the politics of Earth, that is, peace on the planet, good relations among nations and societies. And so one of their functions then would be to commune with the heads of state. They got their hands full these days, obviously. Oh, they certainly do. And another function that they would have would be uh, overseeing religion. And, you know, people ask, well, if angels are really doing their job, why do we have so much discord and chaos and, mm. and unhappiness? But uh, it's made quite clear in all the writings about angels that it's not their job to solve our problems for us. What is their job is to help maintain the order of the universe and to provide help when they are asked, and in ways that they are able to. Now, you mentioned that the hierarchy comes to us from this one individual, Dionysius? A pseudo-Dionysius. Right. So he was sort of Dionysius. (laughs) (laughs) He's called pseudo-Dionysius. It's an odd name. It makes it sound like he's a phony, but it wasn't that he was a false person. There's a biblical character by the name of Dionysius, and so he was called pseudo-Dionysius, early on, centuries ago, to distinguish oh, him see. from that biblical figure. Uh, he was a Christian. He might have been a Syrian priest. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he put together a nine-level hierarchy of angels that uh, the reason why we're familiar with it today is because it was adopted by St. Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas lived in the 1200s. He was a theologian, and he became literally the greatest doctor of the church. So what Thomas Aquinas said and wrote about went. So did Pseudo-Dionysius, did he receive his information about angels, not from Scripture, but, I mean, how did he formulate this hierarchy? Is it in the Bible? I mean, are all of these angels, for example, all of the seven angels that are mentioned, which all correspond to sort of a day of the week, are they all mentioned in the Scripture? Well, actually, there's very little about angels in terms of detail in the Scripture, They're mentioned quite frequently, but they're not named. There are only two angels in the Bible who are named, Gabriel, who announces the coming of Jesus, and also John the Baptist, and Michael is mentioned, and in the Catholic canon, Raphael is mentioned by name. Otherwise, uh, angels are called angels of the Lord or an angel, and They're not described in terms of their duties, their organization. Most of that information comes from books that were left out of the Bible for one reason or another. And some of those books, like the Book of Enoch and Jubilees, they go into much more detail about how angels are organized in the cosmos. So the theologians who created these hierarchies, they drew upon some of these apocryphal works. The excluded books are called the Apocrypha, which means uh, hidden works, and also just from their own direct inspiration. And some of them, they just stated as fact, you know, that uh, this is what I know about angels. And uh, we can presume that because uh, many of these theologians, of course, spend a great deal of their time in prayer and contemplation, that they received a lot of inspiration. Now, can anyone 
communicate with an archangel. For example, you have a friend, Juliet Hollister, who had an encounter with the archangel Michael. How did that happen? This happened in the 1980s, and this was a time when belief in angels was kind of at an ebb. And in fact, for a long time in modern history, people felt that only important individuals or religious people would have actual contact with angels. And if you thought you encountered an angel, well, you didn't want to talk about it because people might think uh, that you were putting on airs or you were crazy. And, of course, uh, we've had a complete turnaround in that today, thankfully, because it's not the case. Well, Juliet had an ecumenical organization called the Temple for Understanding, and this was an effort to bring all religions to the table to talk about their similarities, their differences, and how they could further the spirituality of humanity and work for peace on the planet. And she would organize a conference every year. Well, this one particular year, the conference was going to be held at the world's largest Gothic cathedral, and that's in Manhattan. It's called St. John the Divine. It's a spectacular place. There was going to be a ceremony at the end of this, a candlelight ceremony, where representatives of all the faiths, the Dalai Lama was going to be there, the Assistant Secretary to the UN, representatives of every religion around the earth, and that all the representatives would come up to the altar in a candlelight procession and just say a few words about the importance of their faith and their personal meaning. So Juliet was going to say something about the temple itself, this ecumenical organization. And um, there was a rehearsal one night, and she was staying in Manhattan in a uh, hotel room, Waiting uh, to go, she laid down for a nap. She was going to go to the cathedral for this rehearsal. She was a little nervous about what she was going to say. And as she was laying there, she suddenly realized that in the corner of the room, there was suddenly a brilliant pillar of light. And it was incredibly bright. And she didn't know what it was. It mystified her. And she began to get the impression that it was an angel. And not only that, that it was the archangel Michael. Well, this pillar of light began communicating with her telepathically. And the message was, you know, Juliet, you could do angels a great service here. You're going to be addressing thousands of people. If you could tell them about us, that we're real, that we do exist, and we stand ready to help people, but people have to ask for our help, you would do us a great service. You can imagine that Juliet's kind of floored by this. Uh, she had uh, had some unusual encounters in her life, but angels were not a major part of it. So she strikes a deal with this figure, and she says, well, okay, if you can prove who you are, then I'll do it. And with that, this light vanishes. So she gets dressed, goes out to the street. It's a Friday night. It's very cold, nasty weather. You can imagine anyone who's been in New York City Friday night at rush hour trying to get a taxi. Good luck. (laughs) And so she stands on the street, tries to flag a taxi down, and all of a sudden this light bulb goes off in her head. Hey, wait a minute. I can call on an angel now. She says, okay, Michael, surely you can send a girl a taxi. Within seconds, a taxi pulls up, and she gets in. Well, a lot of taxi drivers have crucifixes hanging from their rearview mirror or some sort of religious items or photos of their families. 
as they go along, she notices her attention is drawn to this rather cheap-looking and very large statue of an angel on the dashboard, Mm. and it says, The Right Archangel Michael, Mm. base of the statue. So you can see how all of these things are piling up. (laughs) Well, she has a conversation with the taxi driver. He has his license display. His name is Tony. She says, Say, Tony, why are you having a statue of the Archangel Michael in your taxi? And he says to her, You don't know about Mike? Let me tell you about Mike. He's my best friend. And he goes on and on about how all the time, anything, the smallest thing in life, the smallest problem, he can turn to Mike and get some help. And he said, you know, you should ask him yourself. He could be your best friend, too. So when Juliet gets out at the cathedral, she says, okay, I'm convinced I will do it. But she's still a little nervous because she has no idea how people react to angels. It just isn't discussed. It's an old topic relegated to Christmas cards and Christmas carols in the Bible, not modern day. But she follows through with her bargain, and she talks about angels and how they are ready to help us, but they do need to be asked. They're not going to intervene in our business, but they will help us when we ask for their help, and they will help us according to how they can. And she said the talk was well-received, much to her surprise. She expected maybe some bad backlash reaction. And then she got an avalanche of response from people who were in attendance there, and there were thousands of people, and the cathedral can hold thousands and thousands for these big ceremonies people who wrote to her and contacted her later saying, I'm so glad you said that. I've always believed in angels, and they are our biggest helpers. Thank you for validating that. Mm. Uh, Well, of course, in the 90s then, uh, you mentioned the show Touched by an Angel. We had this explosion of interest in angels, and I think our society was ready for it then. Uh, Angels had been sort of, a, I guess you could say, lurking in the background for so long, waiting for attention. And we seem to be in a collective state of need of spiritual help and divine support. And so we had an explosion of television shows, documentaries, books about angels, and they've become more firmly anchored into our spiritual practices since. On our wall, our kitchen wall, we have a number of icons in the house. One of my favorites is the hospitality of Abraham. I guess he's out in the desert and he has a tent, and these three figures come to him looking for food. And, of course, he and his wife put out a a nice spread for them, and these three, it turns out, are angels. So it seems that from time to time, God will send his angels to sort of test our character, You talk about that in the book. I mean, I know you wrote it three years ago. I don't want to necessarily talk about a specific case, if you can remember one. But cases where angels, they may appear very human, sort of humble. They come looking for help as if they're there to test us. Yes, and I think that angels are sent among us unawares, as the expression goes. And, um, you know, Richard, I've actually done about six or seven books on angels over the years, and they're such an important part of my work. Somebody is always wanting to know about them, so it's all, you know, very, uh, you know, current 
even though we don't have the TV shows today. But the story of Abraham, well, it has a number of functions. The three angels come and visit the elderly, Abraham and Sarah, who are childless. And as was customary in the time with travelers, you were welcomed, you were fed, you might be housed. And so these three strangers are given a meal, and they seem to eat this meal with Abraham and Sarah. And uh, they predict that Sarah will get pregnant and have a child, which the elderly couple find hard to believe because she's past childbearing. Then they depart, and after giving this good news and even a blessing to them, then two of them, I find it rather ironic, two of them go off and lay waste to Sodom and Gomorrah upon the, the instructions of God. But Sarah does become pregnant. They have a son, Isaac. And so the angel's prophecy came true. Well, sometimes there are parallels in modern life where our goodwill is tested. And here we have the goodwill of Abraham and Sarah being tested. They are hospitable to the three angels. They welcome them. They feed them. They give them shelter uh, while they are with them. And uh, I have a story like that in the book. Uh, I'll get you to tell that story when we come right back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Calling Upon Angels, right here on The Conspiracy Show. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, Rosemary, just before the break, you were going to tell us how angels, in modern times as well, not just when we were talking about the biblical story of the hospitality of Abraham when he and Sarah are visited by three angels in disguise, but this happens in modern day times as well, where angels are sent to sort of test our character. Yes, and it seems that angels are sent among us to test our goodwill, to test what we will do for our fellow human beings. I do want to say one thing about eating. There was a huge theological debate over whether or not angels could actually eat food, according to this biblical description. And the upshot of that was that angels are immaterial beings. They can take form, but they are basically thought forms or energy. And so they give the appearance of eating when it serves their purpose. I think that's an interesting little thing. It is. To it, it is. But in this modern story, it involved a woman uh, who had several small children, and she was taking them someplace. She had already put them in the car out in the driveway, and she was closing up the house when suddenly there was a knock on the door, and she opened it to find a stranger, a man dressed very neatly, all in black. And he said he was hungry, and was there anything that she could give him to eat? Well, it would have been very easy to turn him away. She was busy. She was about to leave. She might have been suspicious. But she had him wait on the porch, and she went into her kitchen, and she didn't have much food in the refrigerator. But she fixed what she had and made him a little meal of an an egg sandwich and some coffee with milk in it and took it out to him. And he thanked her, and then she proceeded to lock up the house and go out to the car where her children are waiting. And when she got to the car, her children said, well, what took you so long? And she said, why, didn't you see? I gave some food to that man on the porch. And they said, what man? Mm -hmm. They had not seen any man come up the driveway, and it was a fairly long driveway, or knock on the door. And this is a, a common characteristic about angel appearances, that 
the person who's intended to have the experience will see them, sense them, feel them, hear them, and maybe not all of those, but at least some of those, while other people are excluded from the experience. And she believed that she had been visited by an angel and that it was a test of her goodwill toward a stranger who was in need. So how do angels, I mean, they can disappear in in full-on apparitions. You mentioned sort of this pillar of light. How else do they choose to communicate with us mere mortals? They can communicate through our dreams, and this has a biblical basis as well. Uh, Angels are often appearing in the dreams of people to impart messages, and we find dramatic examples of that in the New Testament where Joseph, the husband of Mary, is told by an angel in a dream to to take her um, away. Uh, in, in a time in danger. And uh, Jacob in the Old Testament has um, a dream of angels going up and down the ladder uh, of heaven, and it has to do with uh, planting his, uh, uh, his, uh, his right to a, a piece of ground. Uh, and so angels can give us messages in dreams. They will appear as mysterious figures in dreams or shiny figures, sometimes as uh, in an image of what we conceive an angel to be. They will appear in human form as mysterious strangers. This is a peculiar kind of um, contact where um, a person is in a crisis, um, and it might even be a, a life or death kind of crisis, and suddenly a mysterious stranger appears um, with an unusual appearance. They are frequently described as having unusual eyes or there's something about their energy field that's odd. Um, they don't say much. They know exactly what to do to, to resolve uh, the problem, and then they mysteriously disappear, never to be found again. And uh, we continue to have examples of this uh, in in modern times. So the angel then takes on a form that is uh, the best for whatever situation is unfolding. You can imagine, uh, you mentioned early in the show, Richard, that uh, the appearance of a blinding spiritual light could be terrifying to someone. And in biblical accounts, it is. Uh, when angels appear, and they appear in this glory of divine light, uh, people are afraid. Uh, they're afraid, first of all, because angels are messengers of God, and God must be showing up to tell them something important or maybe even punish them for something. Uh, and they're also just afraid to be in the presence of such intense energy. So... Imagine that you're in a jam, uh, and this blinding light uh, flies down from the skies. Um, You're going to be more disoriented or upset or even terrified with the appearance of that than you would with um, a friendly-looking person who comes along and helps you out of your situation. Uh, In some cases, there's no apparition, there are what are called the hands of God. That is, people feel invisible hands yank them away from something that's about to cause them great harm or could be potentially fatal. Yes, 
uh, I've heard many, many stories on this program and elsewhere uh, when I've solicited calls about uh, angelic interactions and people believe that they have been saved. Uh, this invisible pair of hands may be uh, nudging them awake just before their car careens out of control or uh, they've been, you know, pulled away from the curb just before a, ca- a car came. They look around, there's nobody there. So these are these are angels, but is there not some sort of a, a non-interference uh, uh, clause? I mean, are they allowed to do that? Well, this this is an interesting point that um, I would say all of us uh, who are interested in angels go round and round about. And the question is, why does the interve- intervention occur for some people and not for others? Let's let's, let's address this on the other side, uh, Rosemary. Quick time out. We'll come back and we'll get right to that point. Calling upon angels, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest, right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Please stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. And uh, just before the break, Rosemary, we were talking about... Um, it's, it's sort of like the, the prime directive on Star Trek, where the, the crew of the Enterprise is not allowed to directly interfere with some alien civilization, you know, change the course of history and so forth. So my question to you was, are angels allowed to do that? Because we hear... Many, many stories from people who believe that an angel has saved their lives. Uh, you, you detail them in, in your book, uh, Calling Upon Angels. So this is a, a raging debate. Are angels allowed to do this? Well, they, they are in certain circumstances. Now, um, there is contradictory lore upon, uh, on whether or not angels have free will. And the traditional view is that angels... Uh, have no free will of their own. They act according to the will of of God, and they have to be called upon uh, before they can uh, provide help. Uh, and yet, we have these intervention cases. Uh, well, in many of those cases, uh, people do send out a prayer for help. Um, they're in an emergency, and it's kind of an automatic response. So, please, God, help me, or... Uh, people feel they're in imminent danger of dying. Uh, please, I, I don't want to die. Please save me. And that sends out uh, a prayer for help. Uh, I have a case like that in the book where uh, a worker in a, in a mill grabbed hold of a high-voltage wire that he did not know was live. And as he felt the electricity surge through him, his... Um, his automatic prayer was, you know, um, God, I don't want to die. And in that instant, he felt uh, in what he described as invisible hands grab him around his wa- waist and pull him free of uh, this wire. Well, his co-workers credited his thick-soled rubber shoes to his survival, but he felt that it was an angel that had been sent to, to save him. Well, we asked the question, um, why why would he be saved and someone else um, winds up having a fatal accident? And I think these questions then get into very deep territory with uh, our individual life plan. Uh, I firmly believe that we go when we're meant to go, whatever age that is and whatever circumstances those are. I believe in reincarnation and that every life has... Um, a basic game plan to it, and when our time is up, it's up. 
um, but we could come into circumstances that could threaten um, uh, an early departure, and uh, these may be cases where we experience these these interventions. In some cases, also, uh, the interventions have another purpose, or at least that's how the experiencers explain them. And uh, these might be individuals who are despondent, who um, uh, are, are, are on the wrong path, uh, their lives are, are kind of messed up, and something critical happens. It's a turning point, and there is a divine intervention, and uh, that's the trigger then that helps them get back on the right track. Uh, now, I have another book called uh, Christmas Angels, True Stories of Hope and Healing, and there is a story in that book of a woman who was battling drug addiction, and she described herself as, as um, she said, my life was just swirling down a drain. And uh, close to Christmas, she was in a bar drinking with friends one night. Uh, They were at a table, and it was her turn to go get the group drinks. So she went up to the bar, and there was a man sitting at the bar. Uh, And what was unusual uh, was that he was a black man. And she said just about everybody in the bar was white, so he really stood out. And she puts in the order, and uh, he has a beer in front of him, but he doesn't drink it. And while she's waiting, he starts talking to her. He knows her name. He knows all about her life. And he gives her kind of a spiritual sermon uh, about how she should and can get her life back together. This conversation seems to go on a long time, and she's just absolutely mesmerized with how does this stranger... Um, know so much about me. So she turns to go back to her friends without even taking the drinks and uh, goes back to the table because she wants to tell them about it. And they're like, well, hey, where are our drinks? And she said, well, I was talking to this man up at the bar. I want to tell you what happened. And she turns around and looks, and there's no man there. Uh, There's a beer, but there's no man <laughs> and they said, what man? We didn't see any man sitting at the bar. Uh, and so the whole experience seemed to have the purpose of um, maybe it's her higher self calling this in, of uh, this is the time, the critical time for this woman to get her act together. Uh, and angel interventions seem to happen in these cases, too. So we we call out for help, whether it's, uh, consciously or subconsciously. Uh, the other night on Netflix, we were watching, it was an old, uh, not that old, I think around 2006, Adam Sandler. It was a movie, it was called Click. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But he plays this really busy, uh, he's an architect and he doesn't have a lot of time to spend uh, with his family and then he meets this uh, eccentric, eccentric inventor played by Christopher Walken who gives him a universal remote control that actually controls time, so he can rewind and fast-forward through the unpleasant parts of life and so forth, and eventually the remote control starts to control him. But Christopher Walken, we learn at the end, his name is Morty. Morty, as in, I guess, mortality or mortal. Morty is the angel of death. Is there an angel of death? 
There is, and uh, Michael often fills that function as being the escorter of souls. Um, there are other angels that are named as the angel of death, and their purpose is to help the soul to the other side when, when our time is up. And John Dye played that figure so well in that popular TV show, um, Touched by an Angel, where uh, the angel of death is often portrayed as a very beautiful, alluring figure um, to help make death uh, easier, help make that transition easier. And do we only see the angel of death when it's our time, or uh, have, have people seen the angel of death, you know, say, during a near-death experience? Well, the, um, angels of death can, can be seen for other people, and um, I have some descriptions of that in um, Calling Upon Angels. Um, for example, um, people who work in hospitals, if they have... Um, unusual psychic abilities or clairvoyant abilities, they become tuned into the um, psychic atmosphere of the hospital and the patients. And there have been cases where uh, medical uh, workers have seen figures that they interpret as the angel of death coming around a bedside for someone who is about to make their transition. And uh, I remember uh, this one nurse describing her experiences um, that it didn't matter what the condition of the patient was or what the doctors predicted, uh, whether this patient would recover or not. Once that figure appeared, it meant that transition was imminent. And um, others have, have described it as um, an angel that uh, if the angel stands at the head of the bed, it means going. If it's at the foot of the bed, it means recovery. Uh, and uh, I have collected many of these kinds of accounts over the years where people see this heavenly figure uh, around a person who is nearing the time of their transition. Um, otherwise, uh, we may not see an, an angel of death. Uh, they, uh, they have been documented in deathbed visions where people have um, passed um, such as through a lingering illness, uh, and the closer they get to their transition, they start to see heavenly vistas, um, um, visits by the dead, angelic figures who come and spend time with them. And uh, at the closest time of transition, they may even see, see if they can speak uh, and describe uh, angelic figures who they say are coming to take them to heaven. And one of the terms that was coined in parapsychology uh, for this was takeaway apparition. Um, sometimes other people at the bedside can see these figures as well. Now, I, I believe that uh, the angels are sort of a separate creation. Uh, they're not human. Uh, but a lot of people believe that sort of dead relatives become angels. They become then guardian angels. Uh, what, do, what, what do you believe with, with regards well, to Unlike that? you, Richard, I believe that angels are distinctly different from us. And, in fact, I've had experiences and messages. Uh, I have some uh, incredible channeled messages from angels that are in Calling Upon Angels where they talk about this. And they say, well, you know, we're different from you. 
uh, we tread a different path. It's a parallel path where you're actually as close to God as we are, but we're just different in, in how we, we execute our duties uh, and what our purposes are. Uh, and um, angels were created, uh, according to biblical lore, at a separate time from human beings. But yes, many people do say that, uh, oh, Grandpa's my guardian angel now, uh, that our ancestral dead take on that role. So my feeling is that um, people can become angel-like after death. Uh, so many cases of communication from the dead where the dead seem to remain very close to a um, some of their living relatives and that they show up in dreams or they give messages uh, and guidance from time to time. They take on that role. It could very well be that this is how the angelic realm is working through them, that it is easier for a person to relate to, say, my aunt or my grandpa or my dad uh, than it might be for them to accept an angel coming to them. So I I think that these are, are very clever ways that uh, the angelic realm is able to uh, to pass on uh, guidance and uh, especially spiritual help to us. We've got about a minute here, Rosemary. Leave with, with, with some tips on how we can communicate with angels, ask for help, and receive help from angels. The best way is through prayer. Um, ask in prayer for uh, your guardian angel to be made known to you and ask for a name. And uh, it will come. It may, might come right away. It, it uh, might take a while uh, to get a name. But uh, if you work at it, you will uh, feel a presence around you. You may even hear messages that come to you telepathically. You may get signs like feathers, coins, other synchronicities uh, that indicate that, yes, these presences are around you. They've always been around you, and you can call upon them for all kinds of guidance. All right, now, how do we get hold of your one of many? You've got, uh, what, four, five, six books about angels. Uh, we've talked about calling upon angels. You have others. How do we get a hold of those books? They're all available on Amazon. I have uh, my three flagship books are Calling Upon Angels, the one we're talking about tonight, Christmas Angels, True Stories of Hope and Healing, and then I have an Encyclopedia of Angels, which is uh, an amazing work uh, that imparts uh, a lot of, Incredible information about angels. Amazon, they're also available um, in ebook formats as well. And uh, the website visionaryliving.com, they can find them there as well. Rosemary, always a pleasure. I, I enjoyed our conversation as per usual. Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you, Richard. We'll talk to you in the new year. Indeed, we shall. Rosemary Allen Guiley. All right. Thank you, Ian, Ryan, Albert. Back next week with. Jim Elvidge talking about digital consciousness. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home.